I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Emergency exit. Israeli strikes are hitting close to where his family is sheltering. But a Canadian man says it's been days since he's heard from Ottawa about when his wife and five children will be able to leave Gaza. The fog of war, while Israel and Hamas trade blame for the hospital explosion in Gaza, an open-source sleuth tries to figure out who was actually behind the deadly blast. Lost, unfound. A year after 16-year-old Niban Icebound died of hypothermia in Quebec, a provincial coroner says the Cree girl might still be alive if police had spent more than 10 minutes looking for her. Point of disorder. A Liberal MP tells us it's time for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war, even though his own government isn't willing to make that official policy. He called his lawyer on his immobile phone in Warsaw. A jewelry thief is arrested despite the brilliance of his plan, really, which was to stand perfectly still and pretend to be a mannequin. Amazing. And <laughs> take a bow, Meowstro. We'll get hold of Bella, the domestic cat with the world's loudest purr. Well, her owner has hold of her also because somebody's got to get her motor running. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that knows who's holding the purr strings. Today, Egypt sent machinery across the border into Gaza to repair damaged roads, and soon humanitarian aid may finally follow. The United States continues to work out the details of a deal between Israel and Egypt that could see up to 20 trucks of aid initially pass through the Rafah border crossing as soon as Friday. But for many, it's not just a matter of aid getting in. It's also a matter of aid in getting out. According to Canada's foreign affairs minister, some 200 Canadians in Gaza have reached out asking for the government's help. Among them is Mansour Shuman. He's a Canadian from Calgary who's hoping to get his wife and five kids out of Gaza. But he says he will not leave. We reached Mr. Shuman in Khan Yunus earlier today. What's the latest you've heard, Mansour, from the Canadian government about getting your family out? Uh, the last I heard from them was five days ago. Global Affairs called me telling us that uh, there is no deal currently between the Israelis and the Egyptians for the opening of the Rafah border to allow international residents to leave the Gaza Strip. They told me that do not go to the Rafah border unless we call you in the future. So you're still waiting? Yes. Since then, they haven't contacted us. If you could speak to a government official right now, what would you say? I would focus more on uh, the well-being of the 2.2 million civilians here. I would ask them to work on a ceasefire, to open the border to allow aid to come in, 
to the population at large here who's run out of food, water, fuel, clothes, blankets. What are you telling your children as all of that is going on? What's so I haven't seen my kids since four days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm staying separate from them, mm-hmm. uh, given the work that I'm doing with the media right now. Mm-hmm. They're staying at a safe, hopefully a safer place with extended family and friends. I contact them regularly via social media. I'm hearing around you voices. Are you able to describe what's happening around you right now? Uh, I have a lot of uh, media personnel around mm-hmm. me. Besides the Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus, the biggest hospital in the south, uh, most of the media personnel in the north have all relocated to Nasser Hospital. What kind of need is there at the hospital? Are you? Do you have that information? The biggest need is fuel for the electrical generators to continue running. Uh, the information that we have right now is that Within the next two to three days, the hospital may not run at full capacity because there is no more fuel to uh, to allow electricity to be generated. If we go back a few days at the Rafa border crossing on the weekend, I know you couldn't get through, but can you describe what you saw and what you were met with there? Sure. So the way there was very dangerous. Lots of car wreckage on the sides and lots of bombing in the north, middle and southern parts of the Gaza Strip. When we reached there, there were hundreds of other families, expatriates, very frustrated, waiting at the border. And no authorities met us there from any side. We sat beside the gate. There was a lot of socializing. However, a lot of disappointment when at sunset nothing happened. Some people left to go back to the southern parts of Gaza, which is how I landed at Khan Yunus. Some stayed in Rafah and went to the UN school shelters. When you were with your children or when you do message with them, what do you tell them about the fact that they can't leave right now and what is happening all around them? I tell them the truth. Children now, especially with the social media, they, they know everything and... They're smart, so we tell them that no one's being allowed to leave or come in, that aid is at the border, and that we honestly don't know why the international community is not doing the right actions in order to ensure that borders are open for people like my family to leave. What are they eating? What are you eating? I mean, just how are you surviving in all of this? Yeah, so um, like the other families here in Gaza, we rely on canned food, uh, dry food. Many people in Gaza have like stored food because we've had uh, four or five wars here before. So people are used to this. However, nothing to this scale. The amount of infrastructure, buildings, home destroyed, the amount of people displaced, leaving their houses... Uh, has caused um, like an earthquake when it comes to the amount of food needed in some areas. Uh, For for the men, we try to fast at times. We try not to eat except a meal a day. Mm -hmm. And we rely on water from wells and from uh, solar-powered desalination plants. Is that enough? It's enough if you can find it, if you can get it, if you have access to it. But it's not 100% pure. I mean, the well water is like semi-salty. 
and uh, the desalinated uh, water is very expensive. So not everyone has access to it. We mentioned that you plan to stay even though you're trying to get your wife and children out. How do you explain that decision? Why do you want to stay? Um, during times like these, sacrifices have to be made in order for nations to be built and rebuilt. And if men like me, uh, given my age, experience, skills, uh, do not stay behind and help rebuild what's been destroyed, then we're leaving the, this, this place in the wrong hands. Uh, I'm going to be doing this for my kids' this future uh, and for the Palestinian people's future and for anyone else in the free world who's out there. I'm sure they would do the same. So despite the scale of what you're living through, as you've said, you see hope? Of course, 100%. Despite all the challenges that we are going through, people here are optimistic that the future is going to be brighter. You were living in Canada just a few years ago. Why did you move back to Gaza? Why was that important to you? My wife's family had an emergency. And when we came here and spent some time, we, we felt a connection with our ancestral land. My wife is originally from Gaza. I'm originally from Jerusalem. We also found a very good community with international schools, uh, good jobs. I mean, we were living a good life despite the blockades that were put on, on Gaza. We never thought something like this will happen, uh, this proportionate. Like I said, we will, whatever doesn't uh, break your back will make it stronger. Mansour, thank you for your time. Stay safe. Thank you very much for your time. Mansour Shuman is a Palestinian-Canadian from Calgary. We reached him in Khan Yunus in the Gaza Strip. When the first images of Tuesday's explosion at Al-Ahli Hospital in Gaza appeared online, the shock was immediate, and so was the blame. Palestinian officials blamed an Israeli airstrike for the explosion. Israel said the blast was caused by a failed rocket launch by the Palestinian militant group Islamic Jihad, who denied it. U.S. President Joe Biden has backed the idea that Israel was not responsible. And today, Justin Trudeau said Canadian officials are still looking at the evidence and aren't yet ready to lay blame anywhere. Giancarlo Fiorella has been trying to figure out who is to blame. He's the director of research and training at Bellingcat and an assistant professor with the Global Justice Investigations Lab at Utrecht University. We reached him in Amsterdam. Giancarlo, I know there's still a lot to to learn and identify, but what have you been able to piece together so far? What do you at Bellingcat know for sure? What we know for sure is that there was an explosion in the parking lot of the hospital and we know that because we've seen footage and images come um, in, in the day after the explosion there showing a crater, an impact crater from uh, the munition that detonated there. And we also know that this explosion took place near some grassy areas where, again, through open source uh, video and photo evidence, we know there were lots of people who were resting, sleeping, um, presumably trying to get away from some of the uh, other bombings in Gaza. 
and in, in the images um, I've seen from newspapers who are who are also trying to piece together, or media outlets trying to piece all this together, you also see around that crater burned out cars. Just give our listeners a sense of, if they haven't seen those images, what you see there. Sure. So the images do show, as I say, a, a, a crater in the parking lot of, of the hospital complex. And um, in the vicinity of the crater, we see the shells of cars that were burned um, after the explosion of this munition. So there's several cars that are uh, completely burned through. Um, there's a car that's been flipped over onto its roof, and there's another that's um, been really sort of mangled uh, by the force of the explosion. Uh, we also see lots of shrapnel um, in in the direction uh, uh, away from 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 the crater. Uh, we see shrapnel hits into buildings nearby, into trees, and just um, lots of destruction to um, a, um, a fence that was also near the crater. And how does all of that line up with or compare to to what we've been hearing from the Israeli Defense Forces as well as Hamas and Islamic Jihad? Well, unfortunately, it just leaves us knowing that there was an explosion that happened there. And I say unfortunately because at this moment we don't have any definitive evidence that can allow us to independently conclude who was responsible for this. So uh, both sides are saying, look, there's been an explosion there. Yes, that's what we know from the open source evidence. Of course, both sides are blaming the other for what happened there. But as I said, uh, there just isn't um, a- any conclusive evidence that I've seen that can tell us for sure who, who was responsible for this. The U.S. President Joe Biden said yesterday he believes that it was not the IDF, that it was uh, Islamic Jihad, uh, and says he's seen you know intelligence reports and documents that that make him believe that have you seen that or is that something you're looking to get your hands on so at bellingcat we work with what we call open source information so this is data that absolutely anybody can get online and um, primarily in this case videos and pictures that people on the ground themselves are taking Mm -hmm. and sharing on social media so the president there is talking i presume about intelligence Mm -hmm. from from the u.s intelligence uh, services, and that's not information that we uh, have access to. Is there something that you know you're you're looking for as you continue your research into what happened at the hospital in Gaza City that would bring you to a conclusion one way or the other, a piece of information that that would be able to definitively say that it was or was not the IDF or it was or was not Islamic Jihad? Yes. So we uh, spent all of today uh, looking at all of the videos and all of the pictures that we've collected so far, um, looking specifically for anything that could be ammunition fragment. So um, when these uh, types of uh, weapons go off, these bombs or potentially these missiles explode, sometimes they leave uh, remains behind. So it's not uncommon to, uh, after an incident like this, see people sharing on social media fragments of these explosives that they're picking up off the ground. And so um, finding that sort of information would be really useful because if you have munition remnants, you may be able to say, okay, these came from this particular type of bomb or from this particular type of, type of missile. And if we can do that, then we could get closer to uh, determining essentially who is the owner of that type of bomb or that type of missile. You wrote in the, in the Financial Times about the essential promise of open source investigations, as you put it, quote, the idea that anyone with free time and internet connection and a stubborn determination to establish facts can make important contributions to our collective knowledge. But 
if everyone feels that they can do that, right? People are doing that um, maybe because they think they're they're adding something to the collective knowledge, but they don't have the tools that you have and the rigorous steps that you take. So what do you say to people who are sharing and resharing these quick quick takes and what they think are contributing to the conversation or to, or delivering a conclusion, an answer? Certainly, yeah. I mean, in that article, uh, what I said uh, was that, essentially to make the point that I think you're making, which is that, you know, having an opinion uh, that's uneducated doesn't mean that you're able to contribute to a conversation. It's actually the opposite, right? And so open source research isn't just, it's not about, you know, coming to a conclusion immediately after seeing a video. Open source research, like the one that we do at Bellingcat and, and other media organizations around the world do, examining open source materials like videos and pictures, it's a very meticulous field. Um, the, the, the open source research methodology is, is a very rigorous one. And so um, you have to employ those methods and you have to employ those, uh, that, that rigorous workflow uh, in order to be able to draw conclusions. The, the work that we publish at Bellingcat is, is always aimed at uh, speaking within the confines of what the evidence tells us. We, we never overstep what the evidence shows. And so anything beyond that is speculation, anything beyond that is potentially misinformation. And so I would advise people against engaging in that kind of behavior and rather thinking critically about the sources that they're seeing um, and, and really working to contribute to, to, to knowledge about this rather than muddying the waters with this information. Giancarlo, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on. Giancarlo Fiorella is the Director of Research and Training at Bellingcat. He's in Amsterdam. She might be alive today if police had really looked for her. That's the conclusion of a Quebec coroner's report into the death of Nibin Icebound, a 16-year-old Cree girl who died of hypothermia last year in the community of Waswanapi in northern Quebec. Two provincial police officers and one officer from the Cree Police Service spent only 10 minutes looking for the girl, whose body was discovered hours later just 200 meters from where they'd been looking. The teenager had been drinking with friends before police received a call that she'd been seen lying on the ground, partially nude, near an elementary school. We reached Chief Irene Niposh of the Cree Nation of Waswanapi in Waswanapi, Quebec. Chief Niposh, the coroner has described the search police carried out as, quote, astonishing and went on to say that police conduct, quote, deviates from the way professionals sworn to protect and serve the public should act, end quote. How do you feel reading the coroner's assessment? I feel the same way. The the efforts, the the meek efforts that were used to find uh, Nieben really is something that disturbs me. Quebec prosecutors, as you, as you know, have decided that they will not lay criminal charges against the officers in this case. How does that sit with you? Do you believe these officers should be charged? I can't say that I'm looking for charges necessarily. Um, I would like to see more meaningful uh, action in 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 terms of whether it be in a form of providing more training or awareness mm-hmm. to officers in, in in the populations that they serve, or whether it be reporting management mm-hmm. of of officers. 
Do you think that this case, I mean, we're talking about a, a, a young girl, 16 years old. Do you think this case is is going to be that kind of a turning point to bring in those kinds of changes that you said and a mind shift as well? I, I can only hope. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not heard anything from uh, the police services with regards to the lessons learned from this tragedy. Uh, we, 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 we've done some actions. We've taken actions mm-hmm. to um, hopefully uh, ensure that this never happens again in our community. Um, actions such as um, brush cutting to create more visibility, um, updating the street lights, and we've uh, launched a neighborhood watch but I'm, I'm not seeing the police services come up with their own internal mm. adjustments to make so that they can make sure that this such a tragedy doesn't happen again. Can you share what, what they characterize as challenges that they're facing that they told you about? Uh, just the limited visibility um, due to uh, unmaintained uh, areas in certain parts of the community. Oh, they, they were saying uh, there's just logistics-specific sort of yes, lights yes. and things like that. But in terms yes, of... Yes, it was logistics mm-hmm. and it was recommendations that we needed to take care of. It was our weaknesses. We, we didn't hear from the internal weaknesses of, of the police services. Did they say anything to you that would suggest taking ownership for the mistakes made? No, no. Um, we didn't go in into the discussion as who's at fault. Um, no, we didn't go in that discussion. The coroner has recommended provincial police uh, that the provincial police ethics commissioner and Cree police services review how the search was conducted as well. It doesn't sound like you've been informed of any any official review happening yet. That's right. As you understand it. When you talk about the the lighting and the things they talk to you about, is that the explanation they gave you for for why they only searched 10 minutes on that night? No, I did not get an explanation as to um, why the search only lasted 10 minutes. They do have their police reports. It should state in there. When you heard that, though, that they took 10 minutes to search on that night, what does that say to you? that there's a lack of empathy in our police services. I was reading in the coverage from our CBC News colleagues the article they wrote that you keep a picture of Niba Nicebound in your office. And I wonder how, I mean, I can hear in your voice that you're wrestling with so much here. And I wonder how what happened to Nibin affected what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it in your role as chief. Yeah. The tragedy of Nibin's death really impacted the community, let alone the the family and the friends. I continuously am reminded of the unbearable pain that they must continue to go through. Um, And we're already so challenged with regards to getting appropriate services. It's, it's not just an indigenous issue that our people can put themselves in vulnerable positions. It's human nature. A young person will do it more than an adult, right? But it, it's not an indigenous issue. Public service, public safety, 
is a basic need that needs to be provided, just as much as housing and so forth. This is an important issue, and she is important, and even icebound. But I'm sure you wish we were talking about other things and other things in your community and what's happening there. What would you want us to know? That Laswanapi is a really beautiful place. There's beautiful people that live there. We continue to cherish our culture, and we we have a, a strong uh, family bond, our culture. The family unit is something that's valuable. I'm sorry your family is suffering, and our condolences to you, Chief Nipash. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Neil. That was Chief Irene Nipash of the Cree Nation of Waswanapi. We reached her in Waswanapi, Quebec. A spokesperson for the Sûreté du Québec told us that they have no comment as they are still analyzing the findings of the coroner's report. The number of deaths in the current conflict in the Middle East is staggering. So far, the Israeli government says more than 1,400 people have been killed in Israel, while Palestinian officials say some 3,500 people have been killed in Gaza during retaliatory Israeli airstrikes. And as the death toll continues to rise, so does the number of calls for an end to the fighting. Now, a handful of liberal MPs are publicly voicing their support for a ceasefire. Among them is Samir Zuberi. He's the Liberal MP for the Montreal riding of Pierre Font and Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Diversity. We reached him in Ottawa. Samir Zuberi, earlier on the program, our listeners will have heard my conversation with Mansour Schumann. He's a Canadian inside Gaza trying to get his family out. He's calling on your government to do more, to get aid in. As well, he's calling for a ceasefire. So what do you say to him and others who are there about why Canada hasn't been able to do more? So... Canada, we have been pressing extremely hard. Our foreign affairs minister, Amélie Joly, has been fully engaged in this, in the evacuation of Canadian citizens and permanent residents and their families from Gaza, the West Bank, and Israel. There has been a humanitarian corridor uh, recently announced, and I am hopeful that, that that will be in effect very, very soon. You're hopeful that corridor will be in place soon, but you're also calling for a ceasefire. And as you know, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has has said multiple times that Israel has the, quote, right to defend itself in accordance with international law. So for you, is is what you're calling for, is that ceasefire at odds with the Prime Minister is saying and Israel's ability to defend itself? Certainly not. Um, What happened on the 7th Saturday was a dramatic escalation of violence uh, by Hamas that terrorized Israelis. And Israel, as any country, has the right to protect its citizens, but it must be done within accordance of international law and the Geneva Conventions relating to war. What we're seeing right now is a humanitarian disaster. The the count of Palestinians who are dying in in Gaza is is just increasing uh, day by day, hour by hour. Approximately 3,000 Palestinians uh, have lost their lives. Uh, On the 7th of September, uh, 1,400 Israelis lost their lives. There are hostages currently being held. This killing has to stop. This violence has to stop. There are clear rules that govern conflict. 
we cannot allow for innocent civilians to continue to, to see this loss of life. It's heartbreaking. It's tragic. We're aware of three other Liberal MPs at this point who are also openly supporting a ceasefire, but what kind of traction is your call getting within the party? Well, I I expect that the number of members of Parliament uh, within the Liberal Party and other parties, this number will continue to increase, but the loss of life is dramatic. It is shocking. If 3,000 Palestinians have lost their lives in Gaza for a population of 2.2 million. That's, that's approximately one out of 750 people. But you know that the, that the IDF and Israeli officials and the Israeli people are dealing with incredible loss as well. Hostages still uh, have not been released, uh, and they're weighing that in their decisions. Certainly, and we must protect hostages. We must see that hostages are released immediately and also, justice must be served. The killing of innocent Israelis was 100% wrong. In no universe is this correct. You were a soldier, former soldier in the Canadian Armed Forces. How does that affect how you are seeing what's unfolding? Well, as a former soldier, I fully understand how countries have to defend their populations. This is the obligation of each and every country. It must ensure that its citizens live in peace and security. And militaries are created in order to do that. The sad reality is sometimes militaries do engage in conflict and violent lethal force. At the same time, as a soldier, I was trained in the Geneva Conventions. There are strict rules to war and they must be followed. You seem to be suggesting you think Israel is already breaking international law. Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're seeing? So I, I don't have um, the facts in front of me, and um, you're asking somebody who is legally trained to uh, mm-hmm. make a conclusion. I don't have the tools to do that. What I will say is that there are strict rules to, to war, And what I will say, just as a person, the sheer numbers of civilians, of regular people dying in one of the most densely populated areas of the world, the sheer numbers for me is shocking. It's something that, you know, I lose sleep over. I know everyone who has connections to the Middle East, regardless of background, regardless of what faith one is, one is losing sleep on this. You know, this is this is a tragic situation and, and we need to, you know, nudge things in the right direction. Would you like to see stronger statements from your government, from Prime Minister Trudeau, to underline that part of what, what you've said? So we condemned Hamas's violence. Uh, on Saturday the 7th. On, on, on this Monday, the Prime Minister also gave an address to Parliament for 12 mm-hmm. minutes. And, and there, he called clearly, very clearly, for a number of things. A humanitarian corridor, the release of hostages, that international law be fully respected. But if they don't say, see, if they don't call for a ceasefire, as you've asked, what are you concerned will happen? 
I, I, I don't see a, a situation where the international community cannot call for a ceasefire, or the UN has started to call for a ceasefire. Uh, the UN Secretary General has called for a ceasefire. So either hostilities will stop on their own, or the international community will ask, demand for a ceasefire. Samir Zuberi, I appreciate your time. Thank you, Neil. Samir Zuberi is the Liberal MP for the Montreal riding of Pierre Femme and the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Diversity. We reached him in Ottawa. When was the last time you said, hmm, I never thought about it that way? The Current aims to give you that moment every single day. Hello, I'm Matt Galloway, and our award-winning team brings you stories and conversations to expand your worldview. Sometimes they connect to the news of the day, sometimes to the issues of our time. And you'll hear all kinds of people on The Current, from best-selling authors to the Prime Minister to maybe your neighbour. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, now including YouTube. I'll talk to you soon. If someone tells you the engine of their high-performance car purrs, they, they don't mean it's thunderous or flatulent sounding. Purring, by its very nature, is low and soft. Unless you're Bella the cat, whose purring is kind of thunderous and flatulent sounding. Bella is a 14-year-old cat from the UK who has pummeled the competition with her punishing purr and who now holds the Guinness World Record for loudest purr by a living domestic cat as opposed to a non-living domestic cat. Nicole Spink is Bella's owner. We reached her in Huntingdon, UK. Nicole, I know Guinness has done its own verification, but we need to do our own journalism here. Um, That's always important to us. So uh, can we hear Bella Purr? I'm just seeing if I can get her going now. Oh. That's Bella. Uh, yeah, I, I can hear Bella. It's, I mean, it almost doesn't even. It's in the. It's in a growl category almost, right? When when did yeah, you? Yeah, it's, it's a deep. It's a really deep purr, and it's always like that. It's not. It doesn't change according to no, you know, the mood. It's always been like that our it's, entire life. It's always been a real deep, <laughs> like nasally uh, purr. When was the first time you heard her yeah, purr we, like that? Uh, we have Bella from her being two years old, mm-hmm. and she's now 14 now, so it's actually oh. 12, it's 12 years this week we've had her, Amazing. and she's always been loud. Um, from when we used to go and sit watching TV as a family, we had to turn the TV up, because you'd always hear her, and she's a kind of, at night time when she used to sleep on my bed, she's like a giant white noise machine, <laughs> who just purrs her way through. And I'm pretty sure she sat the, ch- the children asleep when they were babies. They'd just sleep near her and they'd be asleep listening to the cat purr. I mean, not a bad way to fall asleep. It sounds like it was a plus in your house, not a nuisance. Or did it ever go into nuisance territory? Um, my late husband used to get slightly annoyed with her when he, when he couldn't hear the TV. <laughs> um, but other than that, she's always been loved. We, we mentioned Guinness. How did they go about recording? 
her report um, to make sure came, it broke a record. They had a, uh, a specialist team come out mm-hmm. and they had the recording equipment and it had to be a meter off the, off the ground and a meter away from the cat. Mm-hmm. And they recorded her, her decibels. How many? How high? And, and she was 54.6 decibels. 54.6 decibels, which is a kind of equivalent to like a kettle boiling noise. <laughs> Were you proud in that moment? I'm so proud of her. She's, <laughs> she's always been such a lovely cat and she deserves the, the, the kind of the, the claim to fame that she needs to have, really. But how do you get her to, to purr on command? Um, basically, any kind of cuddles, um, any kind of fuss or attention. And food. Food is the big one for us. Yeah, I can't blame her. Can't blame her for that. Uh, So, okay, we don't want to cast any aspersions, certainly, on her achievements. Uh, But is she aware that she's not the loudest purring cat ever, just the loudest purring living cat? I mean, Guinness made that distinction quite clearly. (laughs) I think that for Bella, I think... As long as she's the best right now, obviously it'd be best if better before you. But you know, she's the best right now, and that, that, that'll, that'll do for us. <laughs> how, how does the rest? They're of, also important. Yes. How does the rest of your family? How do your children feel about having this this honor? My children are so excited. Um, they're in school today, and I came to pick them up from school, and I was like, "You never believe what's happened." <laughs> and the media's kind of gone crazy, and they're absolutely loving it, telling all their friends. Are they? They're, are they're they six around and nine. They're six and nine. Are they Sorry? Are, are they around? Do they would like they yes, like to they comment? Are. Or would you like them to comment? If if oh, you prefer I'm sure not. they would absolutely love yeah, to. Yeah, bring them over. <laughs> bring them over. I'll just put you on speaker for a second. Sure. Right. This I have Matilda who is nine and Eliza who is six. Matilda, Eliza, I'm Neil. In all the way over in Toronto in the As It Happens studio. I'm so excited we can speak. How do you feel about Bella's big honor? We are very proud of her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you did you always think her purr was very loud? Yeah. What do you think we it's... We did because yeah? we always had to turn the TV up. <laughs> was that bothersome or did, you didn't mind? We didn't really mind because we love her. Oh. So have you told your classmates yet? What do they think? They think it's incredible and amazing. I've also told my teacher and she thinks it's amazing. Oh, well, that's a nice little feather in your cap for school, yeah? We watched the, the video um, this afternoon. Oh, the video of, of Guinness coming by? Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of it? Do you, do you think, were you nervous? I mean, what if Bella didn't pass the test? What if her decibels weren't high enough? I was really Really, I was really, really scared. Really? But she came through. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to thank you all for your time and for sharing a bit of Bella with us. Could you, if it's not too much of an imposition, could we hear Bella one more time? I can. If I can find her again, she's a <laughs> <run> away. <laughs> In true Bella style, she has gone somewhere. Let's see if we can find her. Thank you. She's chasing me around the, the table at the moment. Here we go. Hi, Bella. Here's Bella. Here we go, girl. Come here. Will she put her on cue again?
Bella. Thank you, Bella. I would cuddle <laughs> you if I could, but we appreciate we appreciate you sharing uh, sharing a bit of yourself with us uh, and to you as well, Nicole, and the children. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. Congratulations. Thank you. Nicole Spink is the owner of Bella, newly crowned world record holder for loudest purr by a domestic cat brackets living. We reached the Spinks and Bella in Huntingdon, UK, which is 159.8 kilometers northeast of Reading, which means it would take 465.89 seconds for Bella's purr to reach Reading. Tracy Lindemann has said, we treat endometriosis, quote, like it's this weird, rare, mysterious disease, unquote. She knows very well that it isn't. She's one of approximately a million Canadians who are affected by the condition, where tissue similar to what's found on the lining of the uterus grows outside of it. She was diagnosed in 2019, and since then she's published the book Bleed, Destroying Myths and Misogyny in Endometriosis Care. On Tuesday, the opposition NDP in Ontario announced that it was tabling petitions calling for better endometriosis care, funding, and education. Tracy Lindemann is a freelance journalist who has worked for the CBC. She's in Gatineau, Quebec. Tracy, this is certainly not a new ailment, a new pain for so many people. What do you expect realistically might come from what the NDP is calling for now? If I'm being optimistic, (laughs) uh, which I'd like to be, I would love to have not only more resources available to people with endometriosis, like access to more doctors, getting, you know, level two ultrasounds more quickly, being able to get diagnosed uh, faster, but also just that, like the doctors we have are not all well informed about endometriosis. So educating doctors is a huge part of the issue at hand. Uh, And so that's a bit more of a sensitive issue, I think, but that's definitely at the top of my list. Give me an example of an appointment with a doctor um, that didn't go (laughs) as well as as it should have. Oh, well, I've probably seen probably two to 300, Mm. well, not two to 300 doctors, but I've been to two to 300 doctor's appointments for, you know, endometriosis and things related to it. Um, A lot of it was, you know, why don't you just lose weight? Why don't you just try changing your diet? One time a family doctor told me that having a baby would fix it (laughs) after I told Mm. her that I didn't want babies. Um, And this is a a woman. This doctor was a woman. Yeah, it was a woman. So it's not always uh, because of uh, gender differences. No, like I think that that's kind of like a common misconception that female doctors are just better informed and more empathetic. And that can be true. But in my in my case, I would say that that hasn't been true, um, partly because I think there's a lot of like, well, I get periods and I can deal with it. Like, what's, yeah. what's wrong with you and why can't you? Like, there's obviously something deficient in you that you can't handle this pain. What is the pain like when you have endometriosis? Most people have the worst symptoms leading up to and during their menstrual periods. But that's not always the case. Some people have pain all month long. 
And for me, you know, I would have like really intense PMS for about, let's say seven days. And then I would have my period for about eight to nine days. Mm -hmm. And then I would spend the whole next week recovering from the pain and the blood loss, but also all the work I missed, like the things I couldn't do. So basically my whole life revolved around managing my symptoms. And I'm not alone. A lot of people with endo uh, report the same kinds of experiences. We should we should say to our listeners that that we're we're at this point, you know, with this move by the NDP in, in large part because of the work of Tammy Ellis and Leah Haynes. They're the founders of the nonprofit Endometriosis Events. You know them. So what can you tell us about the kind of work that they've been doing behind the scenes to get to this point? Yeah, they are the real deal. They're like boots on the ground type people. Like they were, you know, circulating this petition. They they helped organize my book launch in Toronto uh, and they did an incredible job with the resources that they had. Uh, they also had the petition uh, at the book launch just because it was like, this is exactly the kind of people that we need to sign the petition. Um, and so this petition that they, that they were really working hard to circulate finally made its way to the NDP. Who do you blame for all of those problems that you're describing? I think everybody's to blame. There's more than enough blame to go around. Um, I think the amount of education that um, medical students receive on endometriosis is really pitiful. The SOGC, which sets the guidelines for endometriosis care, are extremely outdated and need a major overhaul. And they just received a bunch of money from the federal government for an education campaign. And I kind of laughed because I was like, more than anything, they need to educate themselves. They need to educate their own doctors before they can educate the public. GPs, you know, a lot. there's a lot of gaslighting, a lot of like, oh, just take two naproxen and don't call me in the morning. <laughs> There, there are just so many things that work against patients, and there's no one single failure to point to, but it is a systemic level failure. There are many different parts of the system that are all failing people at the same time. You write on the back of your book, or the description on the back of your book says you're being told that feeling better just takes yoga, CBD oil, and the blood of a unicorn on a full moon. So there's some humor there, but I bet in the conversations you had, the interviews, and you mentioned the differences in how it presents in in people being part, part of the issue, but there must have been recurring themes, I bet, in those conversations of, of what these folks were telling you. I absolutely found a lot of similarities across people. So I designed the book to be as intersectional as I could possibly make it because my experience as a white cis woman is not the only experience that exists. Um, there are different factors that work against people. So it's not only medical system failure, it's also social system failures as well and the ways that we discriminate against people across society. So I interviewed white people, black people, indigenous people, uh, you know, people from other ethnicities and backgrounds, queer people, trans people, non-binary people, and then people from different classes, socioeconomic status that had a huge impact on a lot of people's care, including my own. And so there were a lot of different people in the book. I interviewed more than 40 people, but recurring themes you know, where a lot of going to your your frontline practitioner and them saying, oh, like, just take birth control, take some Advil, take some Aleve, whatever, like, you know, just keep doing that until you have kids. And then once you have kids, it'll be fixed. Like, that's the message that a lot of people get. And are people but, having to leave, you know, their province or the country to get better care? Yeah, absolutely. I know of many Canadians who've gone to the U.S. and to Bucharest because there's a surgeon in Bucharest. In Romania, you mean? Yeah, with an endometriosis center. A lot of Europeans uh, see him, but there are Canadians who go there um, because it's 
more affordable than going to the U.S. Um, but I do know people yes. who have gone to the U.S. for surgery because they just couldn't get it here. It came down to this moment where they were like, I could keep like beating my head against the wall, trying to get someone in the Canadian system to believe me, to operate on me and to make sure that I'm all good. Or I could just pay someone and go tomorrow or, you know, in a couple months to go and get it. And a lot of people had GoFundMes. A lot of people used their inheritances. They took out loans from friends and family and even banks to do it. People are desperate because it really affects your entire life when you have this disease. You, you alluded to this a bit earlier, but that community, people who have these experiences, do you draw on each other for support? Is there that at least in the absence of the kind of care you need? You need? Yeah, um, the online communities for people with endometriosis are very vocal. There are people within the, you know, the community that are very good at parsing scientific information. There's a lot of wellness influencers as mm. well and people spreading misinformation yeah. about the disease. And all of this information kind of gets presented on the same level. Yeah. It's also not always easy to be in chronic illness communities online because it's a lot of anger and doom and gloom and it's not like it's good to have the support but it's not always good for you uh, all the time you know so it really has to come in small doses I think um, to be in these online spaces because it can be incredibly empowering but it can also be extremely frustrating that we're all turning to each other because we can't turn to the system that's supposed to take care of us. Well Tracy I hope what you said in this conversation helps people who are listening. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Tracy Lindemann is a freelance journalist and author. We reached her in Gatineau, Quebec. Meanwhile, in the UK, British Parliament is holding an inquiry into women's reproductive health. Yesterday, two high-profile women spoke about getting doctors to take their health problems seriously. One of them was BBC presenter Naga Munchetti, who suffered debilitating symptoms from adenomyosis. She told MPs that doctors essentially told her to suck it up. British TV personality Vicky Patterson spoke of similar frustrations trying to get help for premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD. She spoke to Channel 5 News after the committee hearing. Ten days of the month, if you are suffering with PMDD, you have extreme fatigue, chronic fatigue. You then have insomnia, the other side of that spectrum. Um, emotional roller coaster doesn't even cut it in terms of how to describe how you feel. Sobbing one minute, feeling like the world would be a better place without you in it. Truly, truly dark thoughts. Um, so yeah, it's often described as heightened PMS symptoms, but I don't feel like that does suffer us justice. But you said to the committee that when you went to see doctors about this, you were basically told, look, this is something that all women go through. How did that make you feel being told that over and over again? I feel like as women, we are not ones to make a fuss. Like, I think Naga said it, described it perfectly. Like, if a woman makes a doctor's appointment, you guarantee she's been suffering for a while. We just don't like to make a fuss. Um, so when I did eventually go to the doctors, after feeling like I'd been suffering for years with something that in my head I thought can't be normal, to hear those words that every other woman was going through it, every female had PMS, um, you just had to get on with it. It left me feeling weak, left me feeling like I couldn't deal with things like every other woman was dealing with. I felt embarrassed, I felt ashamed, and I was invalidated like that on a number of occasions to the point where I just gave up trying to get an answer for it and accepted that this was my future. For 10 days of the month, I was going to want to take my own life. 
and I just had to get on with that. That was how I was made to feel. Did you feel that the MPs listened to you then? Today has been brilliant. I felt like the MPs listened. I felt like they took notice. I felt not just sympathy, but I felt empathy from the women in the room. It was really powerful. Sitting next to Nagar as well, like, she's so beautifully spoken and articulate. It gave me the confidence to say the things I wanted to say. And I just, I think that's what women are missing. We're invalidated constantly on these issues. And subsequently, we don't speak up. We remain silent. We end up ashamed. And it just perpetuates this culture of stigma and taboo. And it's, quite frankly, it's a disgrace. British TV personality Vicky Patterson speaking to Channel 5 News. Recently, the BBC Disability and Mental Health podcast, Access All, released an episode that asked, how do wheelchair users weigh themselves? Here's host Nikki Fox talking about her own experience. Well, I'm not into the idea of weighing too much. You know, I can kind of tell how things fit by the clothes and the zips that I've broken. Um, But I haven't been on the old scales for years because... As somebody that sits down and can't, I cannot stand up independently without clinging on for dear life to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, I need those weighing scales that have got the chair. So yeah, it's I couldn't tell you what I weigh, Emma Tracy. Well, I wouldn't ask you, and I don't want to know anyway. <laughs> but that's really interesting, and not having access to scales. I mean, it's not a shocker. I'm not I'm not surprised because everything's just so inaccessible, isn't it? I know, but, but the amount of times you go to an appointment and they're like, always say I had to have a pre-op. So how much do you weigh? And I was like, I have no idea. They're like, well, let's weigh you. Can you get on the scales? And I'm like, have you got the seated scales? And they're like, no. Can you stand up? And I'm like, no, no, I can't. Not if you want an accurate one anyway. Not, any, not unless you want me and Libby standing on the scales together yeah. with my neck flying back. Georgie Budd is a physician and wheelchair user who was part of that conversation. We reached her in Glasgow, Scotland. Dr. Budd, many of us, whether we want to or not, can weigh ourselves and whenever we want. How about you? I probably get weighed about once a year, if not more than that, really, which is when, you know, I get my spinal cord injury review. But apart from that, the access to that facility just isn't there. What does that mean for you in between all of that one year, you know, appointment? I think the most impactful thing it has is that I can't sort of monitor anything I'm doing in terms of controlling my weight. So, you know, obviously in health, weight plays a massive role. It's not the be all and end all, but it is very important. And if you're going to manage your weight, which is more difficult from a chair anyway, you need to be able to gauge if what you're doing is actually having an impact. And it's really important for motivation as well, because, you know, anyone on a diet knows that, you know, having that ability to weigh yourself, I also like not too much but um you know at regular intervals just to make sure you're on track and give yourself that that sort of boost that it's working is really important 
And when we, you know, we heard in the clip, just even in a medical setting, it sounds like what they were experiencing, you, you they don't even have the kinds of scales that, that you need to accommodate wheelchair users. So what is it like for you if you if you wanted to get one even? So the other barrier to this kind of thing is cost. You know, the cheapest thing that I could find for someone in my situation was about £600. And that, you know, that isn't something that a lot of disabled people have access to. It would be more. That would be more um, than a, a thousand Canadian dollars. Oh yeah, um, you know, and it's not something you really want to splash out on. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, you know, also I think that in a medical setting, you know, even if we've got the seated scales, you have to be in a position where you can transfer to them, um, and that's also not everybody that's in a. Yes, some people can stand and transfer. Other people might find it really difficult. And for other people, it might be impossible. So it's about thinking more laterally about how we do these things and also access. Why isn't it more readily available just in that medical setting? That seems surprising to me. I'm not a wheelchair user, so perhaps it's not surprising to you. But in a medical setting, to not have the kind of understanding and access that you're talking about seems odd. Why is that? I'm not exactly sure, you know, why we don't have more of those those facilities. I think people in wheelchairs are just so used to things not being set up for them, which is so weird in health because you would think that a healthcare system is set up to provide for those who are chronically ill and disabled. And yet time and again, we find that there's actually these gaps that, that disabled patients fall through. You know, I've, I've also spoke on the access to exercise when you're a wheelchair user and how sort of how we're able or not able to adapt ourselves to get outside, say, for a bike ride or you know whatever with a, a hand bike attachment again that's really expensive equipment mm. and not something that everybody has readily available so you know I, I can't give you an answer as to why it is but I don't think a lot of people in wheelchairs find it that surprising because we're so used to finding poor access anyway. Mm. One of the guests on the podcast said she had not weighed herself in 22 years but there are risks to that. Uh, I can imagine. What are they to not know your weight? I think in terms of a medical setting, we use weight for so many things, including things like drug calculations. And also just, you know, she spoke particularly on her pregnancy. And if a woman's losing weight during pregnancy, then that's something as as a doctor that I'd want to know about. So the inability to sort of keep an eye on your weight and what it's doing isn't just for your general health. It's it's also it can also be a tricky conversation to have weight even in a medical setting and you I'm sure know that well as as a physician. So what kinds of conversations do you have with your patients on that front? How do you broach those topics? It is a difficult conversation, no matter sort of who you are. And I think particularly because there's a stigma around weight and, you know, we know that uh, obesity and being overweight or being underweight can lead you to, you know, have have a higher risk profile of certain diseases. So, you know, while it is 
really important. I think having that conversation has to be at such an individual level. Many of us are are hearing about this, this inability for people to weigh themselves for the first time. So what kind of response have you received so far? What do you hope, what kind of change do you hope the conversation that you've been a part of might spark? Awareness is is so key because it's something that I found. So I haven't always been in a wheelchair. I have been in a wheelchair about seven years now um, and mine was a car crash. So a lot of these things before my disability, I had no idea about them either. Um, And so I think it's that thing of education, raising awareness, um, and sort of looking into your community and what resources can be or become available. And I'm hoping that this conversation will, you know, spark different ideas about how we do this and where we have those facilities to weigh. Dr. Budd, I appreciate your time. Thank you. No worries. That was Dr. Georgie Budd in Glasgow. Since 1987, the movie Mannequin has inspired laughter and tears, gasps of wonder, joy, confusion, fear, disgust, and existential despair. But until now, it had never inspired a crime. Of course, you remember Mannequin, the tale of a guy played by Andrew McCarthy who makes a mannequin, played by Kim Cattrall, and falls in love with her after she becomes animate. Jonathan Switcher loves to talk to his work. You know, you're the first thing that created and then you feel like an artist. Don't you like a new scarf? He never expected. Not especially. To hear it talk back. I really think I'm going crazy. I am so Now, if, if you don't know that movie, I guess it might sound outlandish. But, but don't worry. The mannequin doesn't just come alive for no reason. It's imbued with the spirit of an ancient Egyptian princess who's seeking true love. So, um... Anyway, we all dream of falling in love with a mannequin that springs to life when we're around, but no one dreams of being the mannequin. So you have to give a 22-year-old thief in Warsaw, Poland, some credit for original thinking. Warsaw police have released a photo of a shop window advertising some kind of Wrangler Barbie promotion. There are three mannequins in the display, one in a pink t-shirt, one in a dark long sleeve, and one in a beige top holding a shopping bag at a slightly unnatural angle. That one, uh, that's the thief who pulled a Kim Cattrall, as it's known in the business. Weirdly, his plan worked. No one noticed him. When the store shut down and everyone left, Beige Top stole a bunch of jewelry. And he would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for all the security cameras. So he wouldn't have gotten away with it. Still, it's impressive that he could go without moving for so long. Maybe when he gets out, that department store could give him a job in the stationery department. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.